Well, we're continuing a series on the church of Jesus Christ. And we're in Matthew 5, 13 through 16 this morning. Titled this message, Why We Exist. So I encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. And stand in our God's honor as I read aloud from verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, as we approach you, Lord, we are grateful that you have approached us with your mercy, your love, your grace. Father, I pray you open our hearts and our ears to your kindness and to your voice, Lord. It is not your desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, that all might discover the cross and your victory that you want people to discover, Lord, that new life. Father, as we talk about five key points of why we're here, why we've been left here, Lord. I just pray that you might speak beyond what I can say. Holy Spirit, we invite you to be among us, to, to stir us and to send us for you, for you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. A couple of years ago, a company was responsible for digitizing 30 million books. Now, that is a lot of books. There was so much information that they actually started a new type of research trend called cultronomics. Books all the way back from 1800 to the present day, they're able to sift through trends in our culture to be able to understand what was popular and what was important to each time frame in our land and in 1910, for example, two words became immensely popular. And it happened after the invention of the amazing electric icebox. Those two words which are dear to my heart are ice cream. And as a matter of fact, you, know, you can go to some of these places where they may have a choice of 50 kinds of ice cream from which to choose. I believe heaven... Is going to have 50,000 flavors. Praise God, all calorie free. It'll be a tremendous blessing to us. And, and then as you go down through the times, you discover that there's almost, a, well, there's a great drop in a precious word. It's during the time of the Atkins diet at its height of popularity called pasta. Now, this was a very sad day. Pasta's good. But then also another word that, that, of course, is important to us in the church. Is that as you have passed down from the 1800s to the present time, 
the word God becomes less and less frequent. Used a, a third of the time as much as in the 1800s. There's a steady decline in the use of God through our literature, through our culture. And what is even more depressing is in America there has been a decline in churches. As a matter of fact, some of the denominations, those who aren't evangelical, there's been a great loss of churches. And those who are evangelical, it appears there's only 1% of the churches where there are people who are coming in the churches that are responding to the gospel and are growing in a manner of being saved and being baptized and becoming a part of the church. In most churches, it's just like two big aquariums and they're switching fish. Or I should say many aquariums that change fish. So when we come to Christ, why doesn't he just whisk us on up into heaven? You know, like Star Trek, you know, God just beam me up. I've got salvation. I've got what I need, Lord. You provided that fully at Calvary. So why are we still here? What is the purpose of the church, and, and I want to look this morning at five statements from our text that give us a mission, that give us a thrust for why we are still here. First one, we exist as exhibits of spiritual reality, of the reality of God, of His kingdom. In Acts, we have the story of the church, the history of the early church. Chapter 1, verse 8, a verse that is familiar to those who have been in the church any length of time. He tells us that you will receive the Holy Spirit. He'll come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and into the uttermost parts of the world. In other words, he says, you'll be my witnesses at home and in the surrounding areas and then moving out to the nation and then to the whole world. You will be my witnesses. And Jesus didn't promise a plan, a specific plan or program. He promised a person, the person of the Holy Spirit to empower his people for that task. And he calls us not to just meet in a gathering place. But he calls us where we live, where we work, where we go to be the church. Whether it's our place of employment or our place of leisure or in our neighborhoods. We're called to be his. You see. In the New Testament, I find it of interest that the word witness is not used as a verb, but as a noun. You see, what we do when we witness, it is what we say. But it's even beyond that. Guys, it is who we are. It is the identity of of, of who we are. We are witnesses for Christ. Cindy and I heard together a, a podcast this week that touched me. It was a couple who are pastoring... In the Middle East. 
in, um, they're in a church that is growing and God is moving and he's working. But almost as soon as they arrived in the Middle East, um, uh, Dave and Gloria Furman, Dave contracted a, a debilitating disease that is causing him to have trouble. Just being able to do daily basic functions. And he struggles. And I, I mean, it's hard for them just to start the day, just to get through the day and do the things that most of us just take for granted because of the, the struggle of his body. And, 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 you know, she was talking about when she was, you know, pregnant with one of their kids that he, he couldn't even cut his toenails. And she's trying to reach over and cut his toenails. And, and yet in the midst of that, you think in the midst of their limitations, in the midst of what they can't do physically, they can't get out and they can't do many of the things that we take for granted in, t- in, in going to homes and in sharing about Christ and, and, and doing those basic things. But in the midst of that, God is moving. And why is God moving? Because people see God in their weakness. People see God in their limitations that His power is available. And for those of us, regardless of where you work, you may be a secretary, you may be a computer technician, you may be a contractor, you may be a school teacher. I can go on and on with different professions. But what you are is you are a witness for Jesus Christ. No matter what your so-called job is, your life is to belong to Him. You see, as you read in the Scripture, there aren't Scriptures that command the unbelievers to come here to the gathered church. Near the gospel. But there are all kinds of commands for us to go. To to go out into the places where people need to hear. Where people need to know that God loves them. Where people can experience the presence of Christ through His people. There's to be a heart for that. I think of our Lord. Turn me to Matthew chapter 9. What a wonderful section of scripture that describes our Lord. At the very end of Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, we read, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. You see, Jesus, he didn't stay cooped up in the temple. He was out where the people were. He was was loving the people. He was connecting with the people. And I love this. Verse 36, it says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They were a mess back then just like we are today. We try to be make this impression Man, we're all strugglers. And Jesus looked. He saw they were harassed and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them. He loved them. And and we need to see people through eyes of their hurt. They need a shepherd. I I love it. Jesus gives this command. Verse 37, then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. 
There are people that need to know about God's love. And Jesus says, we need to pray. God, awaken your church to know that we are witnesses. Awaken us, Father, to you. And, and to, the, to the call to exist as a spiritual reality. In Luke chapter 19 is that passage where Jesus is making his appearance riding on a donkey. But what we seldom point out is that after he makes this appearance, as they cry out to him, in verse 41... We read Jesus, he says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. He, the, the people were on Christ's heart. He saw where they were. He saw who they were. He saw them clearly. Charles Spurgeon, the one that we preachers quote all the time, was in another generation. He said, every unbeliever ought to go to hell with the arms of believers wrapped around their legs. There should be a deep compassion. Just some questions to consider as the church. The church is not a, a building or a structure. The church is God's people. And here's some questions as God's people we ought to ask ourselves. Do we believe the gospel? Do we believe eternity? Do, do we believe in heaven or hell? Do we get up each day and do we say, God, I am weak, empower me by your Holy Spirit to be your servant. Do we do that each and every day? Or do we just go through the motions or do we walk with the Master? That, that's the question. Are we relying on the power of the gospel or the slickest, slatest method? Are we getting the gospel right? We getting the gospel out? Are we praying that God will send out workers into His harvest field? And are we training those who are younger, not so much through a program, but through a power and a passion that marks us as believers? Right, that's the first one. Secondly, we exist to expose sinful corruption. In other words, we can't deliver the gospel without exposing the issue of sin. Look in verse 13 of our text. He says, you're the salt of the earth. Naturally, we think about salt. What comes to our mind is uh, putting it on food. But salt had many different uses in the day of Christ. It served as a currency. Roman soldiers were paid in salt. That's where we get that phrase, "Eh, he's not worth his salt. It, it is a picture of a job well done and being paid with salt. Getting that paycheck and salt. Secondly, represented purity. Uh, this white substance and it, that, glut, that had a shimmering white appearance. Created all kinds of superstitions in that day. And it was a picture of divinity. Third, it flavored food. Made food taste good. And then lastly, used as preservative. It deterred corruption, deterred decay. You see, the presence of the church, the presence of God's people is a call to expose sinful corruption. But, but it's like salt in a wound. When people are 
brought face to face with their sin, it hurts. And they tend to want to lash out as a result of that. Matter of fact, it's interesting in the Bible, Christians are never called sugar, but salt. Now, that doesn't mean we're not called to be kind. It doesn't mean we're not called to be loving. It's just a reminder that we're called to be about the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And salt in a wound can hurt. I remember seeing I were talking the other day, years ago, I preached uh, through the book of First John. And as I came, there was this one lady in the church. She was so mad at me. Why are you always preaching in a way to condemn everybody and to make everybody feel so bad? And, and Cindy was like, I was kind of encouraged by it. And, and I came through the book and I realized as I came through the book that when you preach through 1 John, here's what happens. You're either confirmed, which means you're able to see Jesus has saved me and He's at work in my heart. You're confirmed. Or you're convicted is the second one. Oh boy, that's that salt in the wound. Or you're condemned. And why are you condemned? Because you're fighting against God. And the truth of the matter is, we're going to lose that battle. You're not going to win the battle against God. Thirdly, we exist to expel satanic darkness. That is what he says in the next verse. You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. You know, as kids, the little kids see... This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And we're in a culture, it's dark. We're in a culture that needs a light and we're called to shine. To let your little light shine. In the day of the scriptures, in the days of Christ, it was also dark. Heterosexuality was considered to be prudish. What was real popular was being bisexual. The Roman emperor of the day, Nero, he had married several women and he had married a man. Uh, child prostitution was common. Here's a letter dated back a year before the birth of Christ. It says, if you have... Uh, this is one of the lead Roman leaders. He said, if you have our child while I'm away and it's a boy, let it live. If it's a girl, expose it, let it die. Seneca, one of Nero's court advisors, wrote these words. He said, we slaughter a fierce ox. We strangle a mad dog. And the child who is born weak and deformed, we drown. You see, it was, it was a day of darkness. And, and what did God call us to do in 1 Peter 2, 9? He said, to proclaim the praises of Him who has called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. And it's still that same call today. Brothers and sisters, to, to live in the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. That proclaims the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And, and they need to see. And he calls us to be that salt. He calls us to be that light. And it's a world system when he speaks of the world that is in opposition to God. And it talks about in Ephesians 6 to put on that spiritual armor. Because that battle is real. And that battle is intense. 
And we need God in that battle. And the truth of the matter is, as we shine our light, it's like somebody flashing that searchlight onto someone where it blinds them and it makes them angry and they say, cut the light off. God says, cut it off. In Psalm 139, 23 and 24, the psalm closes. He says, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In other words, shine the light of your Holy Spirit on me so that I may get right with you. So that my light may shine clearly that those who are in the dark may see the precious light of Christ. So so what's called? What are we supposed to do in this? What's this look like? Well, number one, we just need to quit whining all the time. Every little thing that happens, we're like, you know, I can't do it. Oh, man, we just need to get over ourselves. We, are, we think about ourselves so much, it's all we think about. And, and God says, stop it. Look to the Lord and the blessings that He gives you. Remember, Satan's on the loose, but he's on a leash. He can only go so far. Secondly, we as the church need freedom to be faithful and fruitful as we look to the Lord and the work that He is about. One last one here as I close out. We exist to expand expand the glorious reputation of God. Look at verse 16 of Matthew 5. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Are you shining? Do, do people see Christ in you? Is there the glow of the Spirit of God? Are you on mission? You see, missionaries aren't just somebody that goes across the oceans. Missionaries are somebody that goes across the street. <laughs> or across the desk where they work. As the light shines, we're called, as it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Our call is to make God look good no matter what we say and what we do. It is to exalt Him. It is to lift Him high. And Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. It doesn't matter where you are. If you're a, you're a grill cook at, at cookout or if you're a, a, a surgeon, it doesn't matter. Where you are, it matters whose you are. It it, it matters that you belong to Him and that you're building this bridge of credibility. That you're just not some religious nut. You're a guy that loves Jesus. And, And you're open and you're honest and you're transparent. That's the call that is needed. And that happens when we're honest and wanting to live for God and to bring Him glory. 500 years ago, in the old Reformation, there was a doctrine called vocatio. Which, of course, from the Latin, we get our word vocation. And the idea of vocatio is sacred calling. Martin Luther, who was very pivotal in this doctrine, wrote, All our work in the field, in the garden, in the city, in the home, in government, these are mass of God behind which He is hidden and does all things. He went on and quoted, he said, God himself is milking the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all for the glory of God. 
since you will receive an inheritance from the Lord God as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. We are called to expand the glory of God through our life. The prophet Jeremiah told the exiles to seek prosperity and peace in the city of Babylon and to pray for it. And they were in the midst of exile. They were where they didn't want to be. They felt like they had been abandoned by God. And that they were alone. And yet God called them in this very difficult place to pray for their oppressors. And to pray for the prosperity of their oppressors. Matter of fact, as you go on in the passage of Jeremiah 29, he tells them, build houses there. Grow gardens there. Have families there. And yet you go on over to chapters 50 and 51, and he says, I'm going to destroy this place. (laughs) Judgment is going to come. And even though he said there is judgment that is on the way, your call is to live among them and to be about them and to love them with the truth. All for the wonderful glory of God. That's the work he's about. Let me put this another way. We exist to exemplify spiritual passion and purpose. What is it about your life? What is it about my life when someone's watching us where others would be able to say, he belongs to Christ? What is there? That's questions we need to ask. Harnack, the German church historian, wrote in the early, he said the early church advanced so dramatically because they believed every member were missionaries. Everybody who comes into the body of Christ as members are missionaries. They're on mission. They're, as Paul was a tent maker, but he was on mission. And we are all called to be on mission. Jesus said, I will build my church. He builds his church when his church realizes they are on mission. As missionaries on call for his work. That's the call. That's, that, that's what he calls us to do. So just to wrap this up, summarize why we exist. To exhibit spiritual reality so others can see the real thing. To expose sinful corruption. To be sought in, in that wound. To expel satanic darkness. To realize that we are in the midst of a spiritual battle. And we need the Lord. And then lastly, to explain, expand God's glorious Reputation to bring glory to God with a passion and a purpose in all that we do. Let's pray. Father, um, we have examined this question of why are we still here? Why have we not just instantly been transported to heaven, Lord? And we've looked at these five important thrusts of our mission, Lord. Uh, Father, just wake me up. Wake us all up, God. Um, Just... uh, Show us clearly. You know, we can't see. We Open our eyes, God. As uh, Jesus prayed, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Father, here we are this morning. We have an altar. Um, Father, if you want us to come and to pray at the altar, may we come. If you want us to pray right where we are as we stand, as we sing, may we pray there. Father, maybe there's one here who has 
not trusted you yet as Savior and Lord and found that forgiveness, I pray that this might be the time for that, God. Today, the day of salvation. What a great, glorious celebration. May that happen, God. Um, Just work in us, Father. What I care about more than anything is that you would be evident among us, Lord. That we'd be able to say, God was here today. Um, Father, just do that. As we come to this time we call invitation and response, Lord, that's not something we can do. It's only something you do. So may you be free to do it, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.